Good evening, everyone. Um, our thank you, appreciate that. Whoever said good evening, the two of you. Um, our reading this evening is from Isaiah chapter thirty-five. Uh, it's verses one to ten. It'll be on the screens behind me. Um, it's also in the red pew Bibles there in front of you. I'll be reading from the New International Version. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution, he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there, and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. This is the word of the Lord. We have been in the middle of a year-long series we've called Reimagine, not Reinvent. We've been careful to say that over and over again. Um, we started off reimagining our city and God's grace and our own stories. Uh, we moved on to reimagining creation. And this month we have been talking about the theme, the season of Advent. And we've been reimagining Advent. There's a, a running joke among the Providencia staff team. And I'm not sure when it began or why, but I'm reliably informed it even showed up at an awards ceremony at Emily Blaylock's graduation party the other night. Um, we are not a church that offers escape from reality or the pains of life. We are not here as a church with an epidural to numb you from whatever difficulties you are going through right now. So the joke that we have, uh, that has run through our staff team is that the tagline for our church should be, Providencia, this is going to hurt a little. <laughs> and so the title for tonight's sermon is, Reimagine Advent, this is going to hurt a little. As I was thinking about this sermon and this season that we are in, I thought that's actually not a bad tagline for Advent. Advent is a season of watching and waiting. A season of recognizing the hurt, pain, darkness, even sin that still infects our world. The effects of brokenness are all around us, and Advent encourages us, in fact, forces us, if we let it, not to look away. 
Advent is not really cheerful or warm. It's neither happy nor festive. It begins in the dark. As pastor theologian Fleming Rutledge, a woman who has been called by one of her mentors the patron saint of Advent, she says Advent begins in the dark and it embraces the dark. Advent, this is going to hurt a little. This season before Christmas is so much more than that, a season before Christmas. It is more than a preamble to the celebration of Jesus' birth. It is more than a buffer between Thanksgiving and Christmas that gives us enough time to take down the pumpkins and put up the holly and twinkling lights. It's more than preparation, though it does involve preparation. It's about watching and waiting. It's a looking forward season. A season when we hope without reason, when we seek peace while being bombarded, when we love while being hated, when we believe without seeing. You might think, well, isn't that what we're supposed to do all the time? Hope, love, believe. And aren't there always bombs and hatred and an absence of answers? Yes, is the answer, and perhaps this is why German theologian Karl Barth says, what other time or season can or will the church ever have than that of Advent? What other season will the church ever have than that of Advent? This is our reason for being as a church. We stand in a gap that sometimes seems a mile wide, and we hold in tension hope and despair, love and hate, peace and war, faith and doubt, joy and lament. And this kind of tension holding hurts a little. Here's the image that I want to put in your mind for this season of Advent, and perhaps it's an image for our church in every season. It's Spider-Man standing on what I imagine is some rendition of the Brooklyn Bridge and holding in tension two city buses. Now, I didn't just choose this image because I love Into the Spider-Verse. That's what this is from. Um, Into the Spider-Verse is amazing. You should see it if you haven't seen it. I didn't just choose it because I love Into the Spider-Verse, but because I think that it is an apt image for this tension we are trying to hold when faith and despair, love and hate, peace and war, both sometimes feel like the weight of a city bus that we're trying to hold up, that we're trying to stand in a gap that is increasingly widening. Again, Fleming Rutledge puts it this way, The disappointment, brokenness, suffering, and pain that characterize life in this world is held in dynamic tension with the promise of future glory that is yet to come. In that Advent tension, the church lives its life. So when we come to a passage like this one in Isaiah 35... Most of us hear the hope that is right up in the foreground of this prophetic word. The redemption and restoration that is coming, 
still to come, is right in our face in this passage. But this can cause us to overlook the reality of the situation of God's people as they received this prophetic word. God's people, Israel, were facing enemies at their gates. Enemies that threatened their very existence. They were facing exile. Their removal from the very land that marked the fulfillment of the promise that God had given to Abraham. They were facing bankruptcy. And they were facing the night. In a spiritual sense, the sun was going down on Israel, and the people didn't know when or if it would ever rise again. Now, if we are willing to read a little bit more widely, if we were willing to look beyond these ten verses in Isaiah, this dire situation of the people of God is more than evident. Isaiah 33, just two chapters back, verses 7 to 9 say this, Look, the brave men cry aloud in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways are deserted. No travelers are on the roads. The treaty is broken. Its witnesses are despised. No one is respected. The land dries up and wastes away. Lebanon is ashamed and withers. Sharon is like the Arabah and Bashan and Carmel drop their leaves. But I think even if we're willing to look deeper into the passage we have here in Isaiah 35, if we're willing to look beneath the surface, we can see the reality the people of God are confronted with. The land is like a desert, a parched wilderness with no beauty, no blooms, no healthy trees. The people have feeble hands and unsteady knees. They have hearts full of fear. It must be our starting place. It must be our starting place to recognize these same realities around us today. They take on different forms in the 21st century. They are food deserts right here in our county where people do not have safe and reliable access or ability to buy healthy food. They are concrete wastelands where nothing is blooming. I'm looking at you, Dallas. And the feeble hands, the unsteady knees, and fearful hearts sit next to us at work and at school. Sometimes they lie next to us at night. Sometimes they sleep down the hall in a set of bunk beds. They're on the other end of that phone call that you don't want to make at the holidays. They're on the other end of that email that you've been fuming about. It is part of where we begin to recognize these realities. And that hurts a little. There's a cliche phrase I've heard in churches before that goes something like this. The fastest and surest way to get to hell is to refuse to go there. The fastest and surest way to get to hell is to refuse to go there to go there. Now, the conception and themes of hell in the Bible are complex and complicated, and I'm not here to debate those complications tonight. But I get the sense of this kind of claim, and I think it might be right. Pastor in New York City, Rich Viodas, says this 
said this this week, Our refusal to face the darkness of our world, our cities, our families, and our lives further entrenches us in darkness. Our refusal to face the darkness further entrenches us in darkness. It is one of Providencia's foundational starting points that there is some hell in each of our stories. There is pain and darkness, shame and guilt. And we believe that if we refuse to acknowledge that brokenness, it will overcome us. So we try to create spaces where people can sit in their brokenness without judgment. We try to sympathize and empathize, drawing on our own reality of brokenness. And we look to the great healer, who in the most profound moment of vulnerability took all of that brokenness on himself. He is our way out of the hell that we find ourselves in. But it's going to hurt a little to let him pull us out. And this leads us to the second reality that we have to recognize. It isn't our responsibility, nor is it in our power to fix our own brokenness. If we're going to recognize that this brokenness exists all around us and in ourselves, the second reality we have to recognize is that it is not our responsibility, nor is it in our power to fix our own brokenness. And Advent gives us the space to recognize that reality of brokenness. Advent also gives us the eyes to see the one who can mend that brokenness. I was sitting with someone this week who was talking to me about a friend of theirs who had harmed themselves. Tears came to tears came to their eyes as they described the many conversations that they had had with their friend before anything had happened. Tears streamed down their face as they expressed this person I was talking to, the guilt of having missed the signs. And this person said to me, I don't know how I could have seen it, but I should have seen it. And we sat in silence for a minute. This person isn't a counselor or a therapist. This person has, has no training that would have or should have prepared prepared them to hear the kind of pain that might cause someone to hurt themselves. And I know from you all who have experience and that kind of training that even that kind of training doesn't mean you'll be able to prevent bad things from happening. I tried to reassure this person of all these things, but I'm not sure it helped much. They were staring darkness in the face and feeling it. They were asking why, and the only answer that came back was, I don't know why. This kind of story is a reminder of why one end of this tension feels like a bus hanging off a bridge. This is why holding that tension hurts a little. 
I thought this is where I was going to lose it, so I'm completely gone. Please forgive me. Our son, our son Owen, who's also a reason that I love Into the Spider-Verse, our son Owen is five years old. Um, he's a sweet boy who expresses all of his love with physical affection and all of his rage with screaming and punching. He feels deeply. And he also has some real signs of a perfectionist. He hates when he isn't able to do something perfectly the first time he tries, which means he's often frustrated and angry when he's trying to learn to write a new letter or learning a new activity at school. But he's very smart and articulate. His vocabulary is pretty big for a kid his age. And he sometimes uses words whose meaning he doesn't completely understand. When this happens, it is very difficult to hear as a parent. When he tries and tries something new and isn't quite able to do it the way he wants to do it, no amount of encouragement and affirmation can overcome his frustration. So he plops down on the floor and he screams. He screams, I'll never get it. I'm hopeless. Even if he doesn't quite know what he's saying, He's hurt by his perceived failure, and it hurts us to see him hurting. Now, maybe you've said exactly what Owen says to himself, to yourself. Maybe you're feeling that hurt right now. Maybe it takes no effort at all for you to recognize the darkness. Maybe darkness is what is most familiar to you. Maybe you're asking why. And you're angry at the deafening answer of silence and you shout, it's hopeless. Or even, I'm hopeless. I'm here tonight to say, you can be here. We are here tonight because we've been there. And we know some of that pain. We want you here. All of you. Even in your mess and brokenness. Because we too are messy and broken. But together, as a community, we bear witness to another Reality, a reality that holds the tension of that pain, despair, loneliness, chaos, and brokenness. A reality that there is one who, while we were broken, broke himself so that we could be healed. Blessed be his name, the name of Jesus who takes away the brokenness of the world. May his restoration, the redemption, 
of all creation, the flowers that bloom and the waters that spring up, that straight highway that leads to glory, may that be the weight at the other end of our despair. Advent is not necessarily a season of cheer and happiness. Advent is a season of something better. Advent is a season of hope. Pray with me.